You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The Gaza war, I, I, I suppose, isn't the most shocking thing, considering the fact that seven years ago, something similar occurred. But I think what was shocking and continues to reverberate in such an ugly way is the fishers in the Jewish community over it. The fact that there we have um, uh, people blaming Israel uh, for being an apartheid state and, and for uh, responding uh, in, in such over, in a way that was not commensurate to the attacks and highlighting uh, the squalor and, 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 and death in Gaza, that's something that, that, that was around before. But I think this time around, what we saw uh, and, is, and, and still hearing and seeing is a number of prominent Jewish voices speaking out against our country. Uh, also, along with it, it seems, although I think uh, President Biden uh, did issue a statement, I think today, uh, condemning uh, uh, anti-Semitic attacks. But if you're going to say, if you're going to make a whole campaign about a spike, quote unquote, on um, Asian Americans, there definitely was a spike that occurred in the last two weeks against Jews who are just having sushi, you know what I'm saying? In your, in your old haunting grounds and you're in LA, right? I mean, with some, right? And people were uh, being attacked there and beaten and kicked and people who would want to go and protest in New York. Um, and I think uh, I, my reading right before prepping a little bit for our interview or our discussion today, I saw that my old stomping ground, Skokie, which I, I, was, I was living before I came to New York, I saw that it was recently the site of a uh, a cry, not a protest, but a cry of pain, as Rabbi Engel said. And part of the organizers there was the the Wiesenthal Institute was part of the um, organizers there. And the fact that such a a, a uh, rally needed to be held to uh, decry open anti-Semitism uh, is, is, is is I think is striking. So. I know that we talked last time about what it takes to to make bridges. What does it take to find common ground? Why is it that we are having a problem finding common ground even among our co-religionists here from where you're coming, from where you're sitting from, where it would seem, as my friend Rabbi Pupko says, the, the justification for this attack is the weakest one we've probably ever heard. The, 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 the eviction of, of people who weren't paying rent, the fact that some, some people got pushed around uh, at a checkpoint, and, 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 and it seems like Netanyahu has to go and scream it from the rooftops for anybody to accept it. So, so what's your take on all of this? Well, my, my take is, uh, grows out of a sense of, uh, of, of bitterness and frustration. I hope I don't get uh, too emotional because emotion interferes with uh, lines with rational thought and I'll admit I can't be I can't be totally rational watching what is happening both to our people and and, and watching the reception of recent events in the uh, in the public square look uh, if I have to simplify it it comes down to the old adage crystal uh, whatever happens in the Christian world, in this case, not really the Christian world, it means the world at large, 
happens in the Jewish community. And I, for one, think, or at least suspect, that uh, something, a, a radical change has occurred between 2014 and, and, and today that accounts for much of the difference. Uh, it's it's some to want to, um, even though you won't disagree with the uh, with the with the particulars, but the the recipe, or the projection of where it's going is not a pretty one. So here goes though. You asked you asked for it. What is what is different this time? You know, and, uh, another thing that that happened uh, was the release of the Pew report, and. Uh, um, lots of people in the Jewish world uh, responded to the report. Most of them agreed that, hey, no, nothing really is all that different from the last Pew report of, of 10 years. It was 2012, right? It was the last 2012. To, yeah, but it, 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 there were no real surprises. There, there was a market, again, I'm not that familiar with it, because. Uh, okay. But I, I did see the little the headline was I think that there has been a very strong growth in orthodoxy, which is to be expected considering the high birth rates. And um, uh, I don't know. Right. They're still not. They're still not crediting us with more than nine percent of the population. They they are showing that perhaps thirty percent of the uh, the youngest cohort is uh, is, is Jewish. You know, the, uh, the the others are saying that uh, this is not a matter of ideology so much as the fact that the Orthodox have kids, ignoring the fact that, well, there's a reason why the Orthodox have kids and that uh, nobody else is having kids. There's a reason why, if we can digress for a moment, uh, the uh, uh, the Abarbanel uh, coming on recent uh, events in the last couple of partios, why was it that... Uh, that uh, Shevet Levi was uh, was so small relative to others. So you know the usual Turutzim, the Inui, the oppression uh, didn't apply to Shevet Levi, so they didn't have the bracha of Kasher Yanua so Kenyebebechenyefrots. But the Yevarmenel throws in another thing, which uh, sort of prefigured Lahavdil Thomas Malthus at the end of the nineteenth century. He said, look, Levine, we're going to be supported on the, uh, on the public dole. Uh, everybody else was going to support them uh, through, uh, through, uh, uh, Israel, yes. et cetera. Et cetera. But they, they, were, they were not going to have their, uh, their own land. They would have R.A. Levine, but uh, they, were, they were not going to be part of the same economy as everybody else. And they're going to be dependent on everybody else. So Kodesh Baruch Hu kept them small because you can't have such a large population that's uh, supported by uh, by everybody else. Uh, you know, we're not going to talk right now about applying that to contemporary issues in the United States, in the United States, and certainly not the, the issues in in Eretz Yisrael. But one thing that happened after Malthus and is arguing that the world is getting so big, there are going to be billions of people soon. And they're just going to starve the world to death because the world can't uh, and sustain that kind of population. And that that thinking was in vogue in the first part and beyond the first part of the 20th century. We've got to have fewer people. And uh, Western countries complied <laughs> to the point that the, they have reached demographically the point of no return. They, they could do whatever they want. They have a lot of kids right now. All those countries are dying. And their civilizations are dying right. because 
so far below ZPG. Well, and they've talked about again, even even one of the most uh, advanced countries, Japan, of course, is for years it's been documented uh, yeah. that, that Japan, yeah. despite all its uh, achievements, because of its uh, low population growth that was that was imposed upon it. Uh, there is now a uh, there's now a too, there's a problem with too many old people in Japan and not enough young people to really uh, to really spark creativity. A wonderful social services uh, package for everybody, but now can't now can't pay for it. Uh, even China is uh, <laughs> hard to believe, but struggling with the with the problem of uh, of, of continuing their 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 growth or at least their their stability. Um, anyway, what, what did this all produce? Why was Malthus wrong? It was something called the, uh, the, I think that's what it's called, the demography paradox, which is that when people get richer and they can afford to have more children because they have the wherewithal to support them and to put food on the table, they don't have more children, but they have fewer children. So richer societies wind up falling behind in reproduction, sometimes falling behind so far that they can't sustain even the commitments that they made to their own people. Now, there are very, very, very few exceptions to this uh, dem- demography uh, paradox. Uh, United States and Canada. There's only one country that I'm aware of in the entire world where a rise of population has not meant a, a marked decline in the number of children that people are having. And that's the state of Israel. And that's even if, even if you dismiss the, uh, the, the huge rate of uh, Haredi uh, reproduction, even if you exclude that, even secular tra- Israelis, or at least traditional Israelis, um, have children. They like children. You you can't help but see how how they as they're pushing aside everybody else to get onto a bus. How they will help a mother with her stroller up on, a, on onto a bus. How people appreciate having children here, and when they have more money, they don't have fewer children. That comes from a confidence in uh, in in who you are as a people. For Haredim, of course, it's 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 Hakadosh Baruch Hu's will, and it's uh, it, it's it's the, the world of Torah mitzvahs that makes that possible. But even for those who are somewhat distant from it, there's enough of that that gets into the fabric of Israeli society that there is this: we can do it, and we have something here. And we're not going to let go of it, and uh, you know that's a that's a beautiful thing to behold. Now I have not, by now lost. The uh, recollection of thought. Why we got into this, and why I wanted to talk about about the demographic uh, we're tr- right. We're trying to talk about what has occurred. Did you want to say that that has not occurred in the United States? It has not. It has not occurred among United States Jews. I think that's what you were getting at. That in the we the Pew report, although it talks about a right. strengthening of right. orthodox, there's more right. orthodox children and therefore a greater arise in orthodox populace right so it's nothing to do with with orthodoxy and with its popularity it's purely a question of of uh how many children people have 
which is short-sighted because that itself is an incredible statement of attitude towards life, towards life, towards optimism about the future, towards where you're going to put your resources into instead of focusing on yourself. The the average uh, non-Orthodox family uh, back in the last Pew Report was, uh, I think for the conservative community, it was 1.6 children and a dog. Now, ZPG is 2.1, so they, they were doomed just demographically, even without what happened after. But what happened after is what we are now reaping the bitter fruits of. And that is, in 2014, let's say, the last time we had a major conflagration in Gaza. So, Remily, uh, 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 you pointed out that there were, there were Jewish voices who, uh, who, who rose in opposition. You have what, what some of us, please don't um, judge me too poorly for using tough language, but uh, some people uh, would say, not necessarily myself, although not necessarily not either, that people... That's, uh, tap, that's uh, tap dancing for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, Noam no, Chomsky... Yeah. At MIT, who, by the way, does go to shul on Yom Noraim, and I think even not Yom Noraim. So he's, you know, a tough figure him out, but he's been a, a thorn in the side of, uh, of 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 Israel for for forever, and he keeps on going. And you have people on the Israeli left, Shlomo Sand, and I am forgetting some of the, the these these other people who've been viciously, viciously anti-Israel, and. Um, we, we had that. We had that. We didn't worry about it so much because the body politic of the Jewish people seemed to be still united about Israel. Now, that, that has changed. That has changed. How has it changed? So Pew showed that um, you have hundreds of thousands, perhaps a lot more, of Jews. The last Pew showed Lots and lots and lots of Jews who don't even answer as being Jewish. And they did not uh, want to be called Jewish. They didn't think of being called Jewish until it was kind of pried out of them by the the questioner. Pew this time did a different kind of questionnaire and asked different kinds of questions to try to record the existence of those people. It also... Uh, showed, well, let me say, I shouldn't say also, let me, let me tell you two things that it found. It found that the rate of intermarriage, uh, you know, not, not, not so bad. If you uh, discount the Orthodox, the rate of, of intermarriage, the last time Pew issued its report was 71%. 71% of Jews marry out. This time, meh, 72%. That's <laughs> heading in the same direction, uh, but but uh, but nothing, no real change there. On the other hand, they found a few hundred thousand missing Jews, uh, but they're not quite sure because of the way they were asking the question whether those missing Jews are Jews. See, we have now such a confusion of who should be called Jewish, because as we know, we are uh, at loggerheads with the. Uh, with the, the other denominations and certainly with the biggest 
denomination of American Jews, which is unaffiliated, that's the largest denomination, about what, what being Jewish is. Today, you can be anything you want just by identifying. So what, what reform brought uh, and, and has been gradually adopted by, by the conservative movement, which, by the way, Pew thinks that and they're not going to be around in, uh, in a few decades. They're really, really on their way out. I, I, I can't give them more than another 10 years for... Uh, yeah, which is really shocking if you, if you read, if those of us of our vintage, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to make you feel bad that you are, where, how old you are, but both of us remember how vibrant conservative Judaism was. Right. And that it was, was the largest group. Whether it was and- Camp Ramah, whether it was yeah. all the, the JCCs, everything, the, the conservative Judaism was sort of, that's what a normal Jew looks. We talked about Harry Kemmelman, I think. That was like, you know, that was, when Harry Kemmelman wrote the Friday the Rabbis Left Late, he was picking, he was apple picking the, the tip, not apple picking, he was, that's what the average Jew looks like, right? Um, yeah. And um, yeah, well, it, it shouldn't be surprising because- it should, not, it should not be surprising, but what-, what Because rem- remember, they also lost- and again, we're sort of going into a different area, but you know, I, I enjoy sort of picking up the pieces of old history. Oh, no, it's all going to come together. We're really not going into different yeah. area, right? But 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 some of those voices, you know, we, we had Heschel, who was basically from in the, essentially, right? You had a, a Heschel, a Lieberman, a Finkelstein. You know, you had Gavras, right? It wasn't Isamar Sorish. So you had people that okay, Oisvarfs, you know, people who sold out in a way. But can anybody deny how 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 gigantically Lieberman towered over Jewish scholarship? Right, I'm saying right. like you know, Lieberman is it, when 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 the history of the Gedolei Machshava and learning of the 20th century is written, Lieberman has got to be there as one of the top five people. There's no question about it. I mean, look at what he put out. And this man sat there, you know, again breaking in the dough, enjoying himself, and being a well, gro- right. If you read the, read the story of Lieberman, you find how tragic it was. I, I read Mark Shapiro's uh, monograph. Is that what you're talking about? No, I was I was thinking more of uh, of uh, Rabbi Rakefet's uh, recordings. Uh-huh. Well, I happen to be very close with David Novak, uh, uh, and, and and David's a, a wonderful person. I'm sure you know David as well. Um, and David considers himself a Talmud. Mamish of 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 Hagoyin Ribshol, Lieberman as he calls him, Moreno Hagoyin Ribshol, and he, and and I've heard from people who who were up close with him, he was definitely uh, an interesting individual, but he he made the most out of his perch there, uh, not only in terms of financially, in terms of what he was able to do in research, svarim and writing, and um, I guess what I'm trying to say is. And is they that, refused to ordain women until after right. he died. That's what and I'm it saying. was only a matter of weeks until exactly. that they, they exactly. They, uh, so my point is, cons- they could at least point to names that we couldn't just machavek. And, 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 and more than that, for for those who who are anti-Marx, uh, in in the sense that Marx didn't believe that individuals made a uh, a difference in history, the conservative movement is another. Uh, counter argument to that because these individuals did leave an imprint uh, we, we try to downplay it but when the final page is written about the Chuva movement in the last part of the 
the 20th century and, you know, to a certain extent, uh, continuing on to today, they're going to find that the majority of those who came back to their roots uh, were people who had some background in the conservative movement. They, they succeeded both in, in taking lots But they also did give them something that uh, that there was a sense of Judaism there that you could work with, and that really is the point that I'm trying to get to. We we once we once lived at a time when there were there was discourse that was still possible among Jews. There was lots that we disagreed with. Uh, that's been going on for a long, long time. And if you want to look at the modern period, starting from the 19th century, we were fighting like cats and dogs, sometimes murderously so, and denouncing people to the czar and getting people in all kinds of, uh, in all kinds of difficulty. But among the Hamunam, there were things that people still agreed upon. Even, I shouldn't say even the Maskilim, the Maskilim also, uh, many of them took the uh, took took the route of of, uh, of Zionism, and whatever your uh, opinion of it is, it did succeed in keeping people involved with some sense of Judaism. But you know, I would say you know just to counterpoint that you know we, you, you talk about the um, the fellows and men and women who were able to, uh, I guess matriculate from the conservative movement into a greater world, especially I would say on the heels of the Six Day War. But we also have people uh, who were yippies and druggies and people who were into, you know, uh, uh, the Guru Marishi, who also discovered Yiddishkeit in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Many of them became Chabad Chassidim. Many of them became other sorts of spiritual giants. So we definitely, I think, were able to tap into even the people we would say were living the most hedonistic, um, unaffiliated life. We heard stories consistently about those that had come into and become followers of, of Rabbeim, supporters of the state of Israel, etc. Right, and and I guess what you're trying to get to is that what you are disturbed about is that you think that this Pew report should not necessarily be applauded. But I think what you're trying to say is that there's an, that, that unaffiliated group is the group that knows that they are biologically Jews, and they are the ones who are now speaking up and saying, "Don't confuse us with Israel." Right. Right. And we have to we have to decide we have to realize where that's coming from. And I think that the person who said it best was Rav Meir Shapiro, Lubliner Rav, on the pasuk at the end of the uh, the Tochacha. Zacharti, Lachaz, Brisi, Yaakov, Yafes, Brisi, Yitzchak, Yafes, modeling the Pasuk, as Brisi, Avram, Eskar, Vaharat, Eskar. So Lublina Rav said that at one point, the bris of Torah was what held the Jewish people together. They could disagree. You had Karayim and Sadokim that, uh, that were arguing, but they, but they knew there was a Torah. And the, the arguments were about what, what that was machai of us, but there was no question that there was that Torah. And for the and for the body politic, if you were 
Uh, it didn't matter if you were a Tamachacham, it mattered, of course, but you, even the Amaaretz, though, in the time of Rabbi Akiva, who was ready to be no Sheikh the Tamachacham, like a, like a Chamar, it was because of a sense of jealousy. That is what Chazal is saying there. So Lubinarov said that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is first going to look at that verse, at the Kesher that Jews have with Torah. There would come a time when Jews would not have that Kesher anymore. They would not have that Kesher. They'd give up Torah entirely. But what would they have? They would have Yitzchak. They would have the idea of Avodah. They built temple this and temple that. And what they taught ideologically was was poison, but they felt the need to have shuls, and shuls became the the nexus of Jewish life. One of the hardest things that we had decades ago in explaining to non-Orthodox people was that we don't see the synagogue as the center of Jewish For us, it's the family, it's the home, because we had vibrant homes. The next step, said the Lublina Rav, would be... Avram that they'd give up the shul also, which they've been doing now for decades. They're getting older. They're losing the, losing the youth. Uh, corona has added to that, maybe put the death, uh, the death, death knell upon it. But what, they would, what still would be left would be chesed, that Jews would, would outshine others in their commitment to chesed. At one point, the, the, the chesed was directed to a large extent the Jewish causes. I remember the opening years of Lifestyle magazine. I don't know if they still publish, but for some reason they sent me uh, issues all the time. It was super glossy and it was meant to be a magazine for the fantastically wealthy uh, because you could get the right advertisers of high-end stuff. And they always featured people who had interesting life stories because they'd amassed lots and lots of money and what they were doing with that money, where they were giving. A few years later, you know, were no longer Jewish charities. They were giving to hospitals and museums exclusively, but it was remotely Jewish, including lots and lots, if not most, non-Jews in their pages because they were running out of, of philanthropists among the younger generation of Jews who just weren't interested they didn't have that sense of, of giving and chesed. They may have retained in, in the, the, the good parts of the search on the left for global justice and for, for, uh, for greater equality and the like. There, there was much, much good, and there still is much good in that quest. But something happened along the way. And what happened along the way may be... Well, still needs one step, and that was the last part of the pasuk. Right. I don't remember who it was who sort of added to Rav Meir Shapiro's machshava, and he said, "When all three of those would fail, it would still be aretz. There would be people who would be mosur to a community for Jews to live. It could be apikorsim gemurim, but they were." They were responsive to the idea that Jews needed a homeland and it would work for it, believe the nefesh. Uh, you know, one of the things we don't like talking about in that famous confrontation meeting between Ben-Gurion and the Chazonish, uh, we keep on 
updates every now and then, nothing ever to our satisfaction. Seems to have been sort of expected, uh, accepted, at least I've heard it from very reliable people within the Haredi world, is that the Chazonish did say afterwards that, and I can't do it in Yiddish, it was much better there, that there is something to the old man. <laughs> so, he saw something there that you, you don't you don't see. He, well, supposedly he didn't look at it. Supposedly he wasn't Mastaka Bifnei. Maybe yeah, that was the Brisker Rav. Maybe that was the Brisker Rav. Certainly, certainly, certainly something that would sound right for the Chazonish, which would make that comment all the more remarkable. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, by the way, you know that uh, Gil Kane, who was a comic, uh, who, who drew comic books, and the person, when you drew comic books, you were the creator of comic books. And he came up with the idea of the guardians of the universe, I think they were called. Um, sure. The Green Lantern. I'm talking about the, 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 the Hever who gave out the rings. So he modeled the, uh, this ultimate Chocham. Who were from the from the guardians who gave out the power rings to the various Green Lanterns <laughs> on Ben Gurion? He had Ben Gurion. He said, "Yeah, that's and take a look. You can take a look and see the, um, the, the that character. I forgot what he's called. Ganthet, I think his name is in the comic books. Ganthet is a clone of Ben Gurion. Ben Gurion <laughs> definitely his tourists upon him as Gil Kane recognized. You know, he you know he had a he had a look about him." Uh, that he was—he wasn't just a um, an opportunist. Can I add a shtickle Torah now that you recorded this? Uh, uh, absolutely, and I'm, I'm hard, it's not a shtickle Torah; it's just a chap. I've hardly—I've hardly gotten started. I'm not ready. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, look, you know, this is this podcast could last three hours. Like my good friend right. Lichtenstein, he has his—he has his headlines podcast. He gives him gives him. They go for two hours. We can't. We don't have that luxury. We, but no, I will. Okay. I will. I will tell you. Late that, here. <laughs> I will tell you that that pasuk talks about af. The af as bris but then the other two are fueled with some anger. You know what I'm saying? Nah. There's the af as brisi yitzchok. There's the af. There's the the sense of fighting over the shuls. Yes, okay. Yeah, what shul it's going to be? Conservative? How big are we going to build it? And then there's af as brisi avram. But by ha'aretz, there's no the af ha'aretz eskar. Mm. There's no af there. In other words, when it comes to uh, the zichron ha'aretz, which can be a tremendous unifying element, and as we know, it was. I, again, I'll, I'll, let me fill in the holes for you while you were sort of like going off in Drushland, which is that basically because of the sense of Israel being uh, a, a threatened minority, because of the incredibleness of the Six Day War, because of the miracles of a nation that was going to be thrown into the sea, destroyed, slaughtered 20 years after the Holocaust, that gave Eretz Yisrael a tremendous amount of, 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 of pro-publicity in the, in the secular world, but also among all different types of Jews. So everybody, you know, I remember Groucho Marx uh, going on television in the late 60s. Maybe it was on, was on Buckley Show or something like that. I remember him talking about what's, what, what, to say, yes, this is to decry the Arab terrorism of, uh, not terrorism, the Arab d- want to destroy the land of Israel. The Groucho Marx, many Marx's son. This is like, you know, you, you couldn't get more, you know, more involved in the non-Jewish world than Groucho. But Afa Pique, there was a sense, we are standing with Eretz Yisrael because we need to. And that, I think, was a, 
the difference, of course, was, I believe, and I'm not the first one to say it, is the way things have flipped. That Eretz Yisrael, because of its incredible success and support and people who moved there and the fact that they were no longer uh, this tiny nation that wasn't able to use intellectual properties the way they had, were able to become this successful uh, country. They were able to make strides in so many different ways. And what happened is, and this is where we lost the Hasbara War, somehow we got turned into the ugly South African apartheid, Nazi-like occupational force um, that it resonates. Look, the lie that Black Lives Matter says the Palestinians' cause is our cause, why does that ringing a bell, right? Can you imagine in the time of, 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 of A.J. Heschel, anybody saying that? Can you imagine anyone in the time, uh, in the 60s, the, the, the glory days of the civil rights movement, that somebody, or Martin Luther King himself, would any way, shape, or form equate the, the Jews as 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 as, as the as the uh, empowered white culture that is that is uh, that has an identity of of, of of domination? And I think that's I think that is what you meant before about azoyvi this kristalzach azoyidlzach. There's more. There's more to it. Go there's ahead. It, which I think you'll love. I think. So here's, here's the scoop. I have two more steps. One is that among Jews themselves, things to talk about. At one point, we were talking and arguing about, about the nature of Torah, but nobody said, Torah has, doesn't speak to me at all, or I don't believe in Torah. I mean, you always had people who were, who were Jewish atheists, even when, before people invented the word. But... Uh, as a serious force, it didn't, it didn't end the conversation with people of the ability to argue or to get together and, and talk about the things that they had in common. When, when, that, when that faded, when in the 20th century, because of the depredations of the, uh, the other movement, um, people, Jews were fed the idea that the Torah is not divine. It certainly doesn't make any normative demands upon our practice. It was very disappointing, and it led to lots of acrimony, and, and, and it was a huge fissure in the community. But at the same time, there were things we could talk about. We talked about, for a while, we talked about the Holocaust. And for a couple of decades, the Holocaust, remembering the Holocaust, the, the specter of the next Holocaust uh, remained with us, and it allowed Jews to work together. To, to fight to fight common enemies or to to find a sense of mission we don't want to we don't want to give hitler the the uh the, the victory that he wanted and by staying jewish in any form we were denying him that victory well guess what happened after a while jew and how much bloodshed it meant and they just didn't want to hear it so the holocaust ceased to become a way of, of, of getting people to do tshuva, to consider giving a, a more serious hearing to Yiddishkeit, but Israel did speak to them. And in the, in, the, in the course of time, that faded as well. When the mood on campus became so oppressively anti-Israel, 
Jews, many Jews, not all, of course, not and to this day, it's not true of all of them, and they're marvelous, marvelous kids on every campus who are fighting the wars of God, but there are fewer of them because Israel is seen as a real disability. You don't want to, you don't want to make it known in the classroom that you're a supporter of Israel when it's going to cost you a grade of even, even passing or failing the course. So Israel ceased to become an attraction. And the reason why the, the, the halls of academia were filled with... Such well, we're going we're to talk about that. Okay. That's what I meant by, by uh, these crystals. Of, but there's still one thing, there's still one thing that's, uh, that's different. Uh, there's still one thing that's missing. Among, among older Jews, I forgot who it was who pointed out that when Jews could not agree, could not talk about Jewish practice... They were still united about Jewish values. The, the conservative movement uh, thought parts of the Torah were divine, the parts they liked, the part that had to do with values. The reform movement didn't think any of it was divine, but they still liked the values. The, the other stuff, the superstition, we could get rid of. But values were still something that the Jews roughly had in common. So there was a possibility of of, of discussion, of, of communication. But uh, that changed. That changed. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't have the year to, to, uh, to, to, to put on this, but with the, with the other denominations gradually accepting the uh, LGBT and abortion rights as the, uh, the most important parts of their tikkun olam and social service, social justice campaigns. So it turned out that from Jews were, for the most part, working for ideas and ideals that were the opposite of what their brothers and sisters believed in. So that was the most important fissure that we've seen in our lifetime. That's why I, I can't be so, so uh, upbeat and sanguine about, about, you know, let's all try a lot harder to be nice to our non-Orthodox neighbors. I, I believe that because of the Kirov movement, we have far more people who are attuned to that and would love to do that. But we don't even have a common basis of, of conversation. It, it's easier, Lahavdil, to sit down often with an evangelical Christian. And as, talk- you, as you have done. Often. As I have done, and yeah, and to a certain extent, maybe I've taken the coward's way out because it's often easier to have a conversation with them. Of course. Well, you know, I think what you need to to, to say is, you know, I remember the was it the Time Magazine headline, "God is dead." Is God dead? Remember that? It was sometime I think in nineteen seventy or seventy one or something it was like the that. The Look Magazine one about the disappearing Jew and how there would be. I'm no talking di- about the Time Magazine. Is God is dead? dead? Is God dead? I think that was 71 or 72 or 73. The point, though, is, is that once, again, it, it was easy to be a non-practicing Christian and still believe, basically, that the Bible is a holy book, even right. though, right? And there was this thing, you know, again, you shoot a bunch of Indians and you, you, you slaughter people, but you still got the good book, right? You still have the Bible. And, and therefore, in the Bible, it talks about King David. And it talks about the land of Israel and it talks about, you know, um, you know, going to Canaan and and things like that. And I think part of that meant that even a non-affiliated Christian 
believed in some way in the Bible ideas, the biblical ideas, which of course are our prime connection to Eretz Yisrael, is that it's all in the Torah, it's all in Nevi'im, it's all in Ksuvim. Once the Bible becomes a book that is total fantasy, and God is, who knows, right? Who knows whether God really exists? (laughs) For sure, and if he does exist, he definitely didn't inspire or write the Bible. So so therefore, what does it become? I'm going to use a movie reference for you. Um, You know, I, I, I taught film, you come from L.A., you know this family. You know, you've met Steven Spielberg, correct? You've met Steven. You know his mother for sure, right? I, I loved eating in a restaurant. Right, okay. So Spielberg, I don't know if he has big schlussum that he made Schindler's List. I, my feeling is that, that to him, that to him was his avoda. Besides the fact that the, 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 the Holocaust Foundation of doing the recordings, to him, it, it was clear that, that, that Schindler's List was his great carbon to the Rabbi Shalom. But he made another film called Munich. I don't know if you saw Munich. You can admit to it here on this program. We're not going to throw you out of the I, I, I actually didn't because I couldn't stomach the premise. So okay. I, so, uh, so, okay. So Munich, there is a discussion between uh, why, uh, between a Palestinian or a terrorist and the Jewish uh, agent the best Spielberg can come up with. And Spielberg is a proud Jew. Spielberg is someone yes. who, right, he, yes. he very much said that he is a product of being a Jewish person. The best he could come up with is Israel needs to be a homeland because the Jews were persecuted in the Holocaust. They needed a place to be. There was no, he did not put into the mouth of his protagonist this is our historical place. This is where Jews were created. This is where we went from the desert. This is where we had our life. This right. is where we had our kings. What I'm trying to say is even the best intentioned Jew ended up defending Israel as a miklat, as a place because we had to escape the Holocaust, which meant once we are not the escapees, once we are not the poor, ragged refugees like my parents, then all of a sudden, Hmm, why should we love your country? If even, even if you have someone like Spielberg, who the best he can come up with is, of course we deserve Israel because we were, because of what the Nazis did to us, because of the, because of the world's silence, because of everybody's uh, accom- being an accomplice in a way to our destruction, that's why we deserve this country. We, you know as well as I do, that answer isn't going to work. And so do the American Jews today. They know My contention is that it got a lot worse than that, and it got worse only recently. Let me give you two slices of life from campus activity uh, within our lifetimes. I remember as a, as a college freshman, um, a couple of days really after, uh, after graduating high school, and back then yeshiva guys were trying to crowd in as much uh, as they could during summer semesters. And uh, of course, the rest of the year we went at night. But I remember walking into one of the main classroom buildings at Queens College to see in the exhibit case a poem left by the Black Students Association. And it read, um, How Odd of God to Choose the Jews. It's a famous, it's a famous ditty. But it, it certainly made an impression upon me about how welcome we are here and 
our life is going to be a little bit more complicated than it was in the Jewish neighborhoods of Kew Garden Hills, where I grew up. Um, and those in those uh, in those days, the tension between the Jewish community and the young black community was was unbearable, and it was it, it was horrible. It wasn't just the sense of, of, of abandonment that we felt after after the halcyon days of supporting the civil rights movement. And we didn't know at the time that they felt equally abandoned or worse treated uh, paternalistically. I'm not trying to decide who's right here, but I, what I do- I wanna... will, I will. Look, you know, again, I came to Neri Yisrael um, right when they moved from Garrison. Mm-hmm. And my Rebbeim were the most ribald anti-Black people I've ever met. Because they got beaten up because the garrison, as you know, the garrison boulevard yeshiva was in a, it was in a, what's called, we call it the African-American neighborhood. And the yeshiva boys were beaten sometimes within an inch of their lives. And what happened was the ones that were tough enough fought back and there were pipes. And, 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 and I know all my friends who came from New York, there was a lot of, 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 you know, again, I didn't. I didn't experience that in the South, by the way, where I come from, which is, uh, which was, you know, you would think is like a hotbed of of racial tension. It wasn't that way at all. Uh, we got along very well with our with our neighbors of color. Believe me, very very well. But in in the in the in the big cities like Baltimore in the Northeast, there was a frustration level that was taken out on the Jew because. Basically, you couldn't take it out on Whitey. You couldn't take it out on the on the man, but you could take it out on the fruit seller. You could take it out on the guy who was trying to uh, be the um, uh, to be the uh, frustration, the landlord, right? And 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 and, and, and therefore, we were the punching bag, right? For but what was it? It was born of grievance. People felt whether they could articulate it or not. The people who have and they're oppressing us, they have and they shouldn't have, or we should have more. And Whitey's always trying to keep us down, and it's the Jewish landlord or whatever, just convenient scapegoats. It was born of grievance and it stayed grievance for decades. And there were more people who would open their heart, hearts to see that grievance and gradually realize we have a racial problem in this country. We have to do something about it. The Democrats did what Democrats do best paternalistically throw money indiscriminately around, which accomplished nothing and did nothing for, 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 for uh, ghetto black people other than, as uh, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, talked about. Um, Moynihan today would have been railroaded as the most, he would have been the most hated racist in the United States. Yeah, this man a- the, who, was the, who was the pinnacle of an intellectual Geschmacker. I would love to sit with Donald Moynihan on a cross-country trip. The guy was yeah. the most fun. I'm saying there's people you who you have to sit on a bus with. Get away from me. Moynihan, you know, would be the most geschmack person to, to hang out with. Yeah, yeah would, I, I mean, I, that could, I could see doing that with Bill Buckley also. <laughs> yeah, Buckley would have to win. That, Buckley would uh, have to Joseph win. Joseph Brand was, a, was, a, was an anti-Semite. But my point is, I, I hope I'm not being overly simplistic. But people who who moved away from the Jewish community were were those 
who saw the grievance, found something legitimate in it, were looking for justice in their own way. We don't have to talk about how much of that was justified or not, but that's the fact. Something changed radically just in the last couple of years. As, as our kids going to campus found themselves growing into campus culture, grievance, which is still very big today, and everybody, every group is fighting about who's the bigger victim and who has the greater amount of grievance, there was one grace note that was added on top of that. Grievance doesn't have ideology. You can, you can feel and you can close your eyes to everything naively to all the complexity and feel we've got to do more for, for Asian Americans, for LGBT, for Black Americans, for, 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 for Hispanic Americans. One thing, one element is missing from this. And here's the other slice of life, and then I'm going to get to the punchline. Um, one of the things we, that happened just in, I think, the last week was that at University of Illinois, not quite Chicago, but not that far from you. Was it Evanston? Champaign-Urbana uh, is the university. Champaign-Urbana, okay. So, about two and, a, two and a half, three-hour trip from Chicago. They, they had a meeting on Shabbos, <laughs> deliberately, and came up with a, um, a petition or a directive to the administration. They wanted the administration to issue a strongly worded proclamation in support of the Palestinian people. Now, they did it deliberately on Shabbos, did not tell the Jewish students that they were even considering it or debating it. They didn't want that interference. They wanted it to be a fait accompli, and they did. Now, I remember teaching law school when uh, I, I had to convince parents that it was safe to send their kids to law school because law students don't, don't get into politics. <laughs> They're too busy trying to pass their next test, and they're focused on their studies sometimes a little bit too much. They were essentially apolitical, except for a small number of them. Uh, and now we have this petition coming out of, uh, of, of University of Illinois, where the Palestinian students, the Muslim, the Muslim law students issued the statement, but who signed on to it? Black students, Hispanic students, Asian students, and a few more groups. They all signed on to this proclamation, demanding that the administration sign, come out publicly in support of the Palestinians, as if that's something that a, that a law school uh, uh, faculty or administration is supposed to be doing. Okay. The Jewish students didn't take it sitting down. They issued a rebuttal and a response. Okay. It was it was on on the weaker side, and it uh, it was a little for my taste at least. I think they did a very good job. They are law students and they are bright, but it was a, a little a, too apologetic. And you know, like you know, how could you do this to us without recognizing all the all the the stuff that that, that Hamas has done? It wasn't one of these uh, declarations like. Uh, like we, we heard, I think today the, the video is going around and I actually put it on my Facebook page. John Voigt, bless him, who has had this. Midnight skate. Cowboy. Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> a, a, there's, there, there's a guy, we, we, some of us have this rather dim view of the uh, intellectuality of, 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 of actors, and especially if he's conservative. But I, I, I saw the pile of Jewish reading in his office 30 years ago. He was a guy. 
He's certainly no believer. He's a devout Christian, but he was consuming book after book after book about Yiddishkeit. He uh, attended my Parsha Shir in a production uh, company uh, religiously. Um, so the, the Jewish response, how many, how, many, how many other student groups signed on to it? There was only one group that they could find that hadn't signed on to the first one, the pro-Palestinian. Who was it? Christian Law Students Association. Wow. Now, if that's not a turnaround, like what is? So what's going on here? So Leil Shabbos, I had sitting at my table, one of the leading intellectuals in Israel, uh, from guy who's uh, very, very deep and considered by some to be the leading conservative political theorist in the world today. He's been an advisor and a consultant to... Uh, I shudder to, to use such words uh, publicly on, on some of the central European countries that have tried to come up with a form of kosher nationalism. In Europe, any kind of nationalism is chazer treif, because nationalism is what brought century after century after century, well, not really that many centuries. First it was religious, and then it was nationalism that, uh, that caused the wars. Anyway, I asked him, who was a, uh, he was a, uh, I think, a, uh, um, an Asian uh, studies major when he was at Princeton. So I thought he could say, like, why are the Asians signing on to this? Asians and Jews are usually good friends. They have a, a common, a common uh, um, a trajectory of uh, what happened. In terms of success and, as immigrants. And, right. And, and adapt, and, adaptation. And they took the same steps, and there, there's no tension that I know of between the Jewish community and Asian communities. Why did the, why are these young law students signing on? So, so Yoram told me in his mind... Yoram Chazoni. Yoram Chazoni. He said that whereas for decades students would absorb a lot of this uh, idea of of people getting oppressed and how power therefore was was traif. The United States had power, so it was evil, and Jews had power, so they were evil. But there was no ideology behind it. Who gave the ideology to students? At least the students who wanted ideology, and even students who don't want ideology. Ideology filters down. Who did it? Basically, Marxist. Marx, of course. I was going to say this. This is this Marxist is basically, professor. of course. David so Horowitz. Has, David Horowitz has been talking about this for. He wrote this book, "The Enemy Within." Just lost you. Dave, David Horowitz. David Horowitz, who was a who was grew up as a communist, and he ended up. Uh, he's been writing books uh, for the right. You've heard about him, David Horowitz. Sure, sure. You know, he made his uh, made his move over from the left, and right. So David Horowitz has been claiming this for for years that basically what's going on in universities is really just Marxist ideology, uh, not even dressed up. It's basically Mar- It's basically communist, uh, which has always been uh, ringing the bell for the work. Again, look at again, all you need to do is look at the the revolution in the Soviet Union. Supposedly, we are here to um, help the workers who are being oppressed and being downtrodden. Of course, what happens once Lenin and, and others, uh, and tr- especially once Stalin comes into power, is the greatest mass murderer of the 20th century, right? Is, 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 is right? even greater than Hitler. More people died under communist regimes than, than Hitler's uh, wars unleashed. 
and this is what Horowitz and others have been saying. That's so what, what you're seeing. I did not, I'm not as smart as you are, and I did not realize until last week that it wasn't just David Horowitz railing, because he can rail about Marxists taking over our campuses on Jewish young people that when you went from grievance to ideology, and the ideology was one now of class struggle between the haves and the have-nots. And if you had, you were by definition oppressing the majority of the have-nots in the world. This is what powers to this day intersectionality. It's not just a marriage of convenience or people who uh, decided to get together because they were all anti-Semites. That may be true, but what, what's really behind it is turning this struggle into an ideology. And how many people by now have been listening for so long that a lot of the people who are CEOs of good old American capitalism buy into it as well. They don't buy into it, uh, Rabbi. They some, they, some they need definitely buy into they it. They do not want to be seen by the loud voices yeah, as Nike, being on the wrong side. Nike Otherwise, maybe. who's who's going to buy their products? But but, you, but that's not true in Silicon Valley. You have some of the most powerful powerful uh, groups there, led by people who seriously are into this. No, they may be like 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 rich Russians who supported the revolution until until they were. They had- so basically, I think basically what, you're, what we're saying, and we're going to wind it up over here, is that um, the reason why these voices are being heard and the young people's voices, and we, I, I, I think I mentioned before this this manifesto or that was written by rabbinic students from mostly Hebrew Union College and Aleph Institute, Aleph Institute, and. Um, there was Baruch Hashem. I did not see. Uh, I did not see Chovave there. Uh, I, was, uh, I was. But it's going to happen. I was. It'll so happen. There have been some statements of people in the past from Chovave. Okay. But 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 at least. But what? Don't forget the one thousand Jewish employees at Google, who broke off from the main Jewish employee uh, employee uh, organization to form their own organization to demand of Google that it issue a pro-Palestinian statement and cancel all contracts with Israel based on what they saw happening in Gaza. Well, this last couple, this last two weeks. But, 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 but what you're saying is, and again, is that we have been, and this is, you know, we've heard this constantly, that you, if you are born white... You are part of an oppressor. You are you are an inherently an oppressor towards another culture, and therefore, unless you own up to that, and you you basically use your your intellect and your passion to fight that, then you are right. continuing to be a right. racist. So right. I think the young Jews and, and and moderate people, Jewish people who are issuing these statements, are part of this. They said, "Well, you marched for George Floyd." If you march for George Floyd, if you admit, like Biden has been saying, that this is a, uh, a systemically racist country, then you need to also admit that the power that the Israelis have is corrupt and that you have to align yourself with them as well. Right. And if you mix that with Jews who have been given no reason to feel any kind of affinity to their Jewishness, to the point that 30% of those surveyed said 
they couldn't care less if they have no Jewish grandchildren. So zero. It's not the Judaism of 19, late 19th century Europe. It's not the Judaism of the Bunter of 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 of, of Jewish drama. Of it's not the it's not the Jewishness of Zionism. It's not the Jewishness of resisting the Holocaust. It's nothing. Total vacuum, and the only thing left to fill it among young idealistic people is swallowing the garbage they get from talking heads on CNN and MSNBC, plus the ideology delivered now for two decades in the classroom. We are now seeing a large Jewish fifth column. And we've gotten to the point that the Jewish community has become two different communities, and the Orthodox are living in a world of their own, not by choice. So, so what, what, what's risen along with that is the inability to speak to each other, the inability exactly. to, have, uh, to have a um, civil conversation. And what's also backing it is the power of media destruction the power of social media destruction, the, the, the dependence on social media that everyone seems to have, including me and you in some way, makes us so vulnerable to the harem of being, or having our voices eliminated and having us becoming pariahs and becoming the enemy. And once we become the enemy on social media, all you need is a cell phone to, to, and tell everybody else who's going to a pro-Israel rally. And what that leads to is, hey, I've got a Jew here with an Israeli flag, and that's going to bring 25 other people around to beat the living daylights out of them. And I think we've sort of realized what, what has happened. Um, the, the, I am no, I'm, I, I'm no anti-device uh, person, but we know what the devices have been used for, not only pleasure, but the ability to form identity, the ability to attack the ability to to speak up and to destroy, and that's really what I think uh, is, is also happening as well. And I think you'll agree with me on that point, right? And that's yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And, and really so, the only thing that's going to fix the world is if it all becomes Haredi, rid <laughs> of the internet, and everybody has a kosher phone, and everybody can live happily well, ever after. Well, thanks for thanks for taking us to some sort of utopian fantasy, as we, <laughs> because because we've we've. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.